Hi, and welcome to Lakeshore Update. I'm Dee Dodson. On this edition of the podcast, you hear the latest on the construction of the South Shoreline Double Track Project. Jenny Lindsay reports on some of the controversial education bills that are still moving forward at the halfway point of the Indiana legislative session. And Chris Nolte has a conversation with Indiana University Northwest Associate Professor of Economics, Micah Pollock, about the latest COVID-19 data he's tracked. All of that and more on this edition of Lakeshore Update. Full construction on a billion dollars worth of commuter rail projects will begin next month. Northern Indiana Commuter Transportation District President Mike Nolan says both the Westlake Corridor and Double Track projects will be, quote, in the ground in early March. Pardon our dust. Um, There's a new railroad coming to a neighborhood near you. That's a very, very exciting time. The Westlake Corridor will add a branch to the South Shore Line running from North Hammond to Dyer. Nolan told the NICTI board on Monday that construction will start on the north end and then extend south over the next three years. Meanwhile, the two-year project to double-track the main line between Gary and Michigan City will move from east to west, and Nolan says additional state and federal funding was recently made available to take it across the finished line. We are now able to fully fund the double-track agreement. So we restored all of those elements that we, the board in um, November passed as options. Those are now now included in the project. The Westlake project will also benefit from lower interest rates thanks to funding through the U.S. Department of Transportation's Build American Bureau. The board also approved a nearly $2 million increase to HDR engineering for program management services due in part to the intense negotiations due in part to the intense negotiations required to bring down construction costs. Nolan warns that construction will lead to service disruptions, but he promises riders it will be worth it. It's not going to be your typical daily service. We're going to be operating the, the, the service through construction zones. We're going to be doing a lot of busing in order to, in order to make this happen. Um, and so we ask their, our riders' patience. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. But the projects will also require more improvements. NICTI plans to fix a choke point on the Metro Electric District by converting a storage track to a fourth mainline track between 11th Street and Millennium Station. The South Shore is also rehabilitating its train cars, the oldest of which are now approaching 40 years of service. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. Lake County residents have reported getting calls from scammers threatening them with arrests. The Times reports the suspects pretend to be employees at the Lake County Clerk's Office. They reportedly ask victims to give them personal information in order to claim funds or the scammers tell them that they have outstanding judgments against them and they will be arrested if they do not pay money. They also changed the phone number to appear to be from county government. 
Lake County officials say residents should not give any personal information like social security numbers or banking information to, to anyone who calls, claiming to be from the Lake County Clerk's Office. The Lake County Circuit's and Superior Clerk's Offices do not call residents to demand payment for a court cost, fine, or judgment. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with D. Dotson. The East Chicago City Council is considering an ordinance that seeks to safeguard city employees' collective bargaining rights. The Times reports ordinance sponsor Robert Garcia says it includes provisions against strikes and lockouts and tries, quote, to bring both sides together without going to court, end quote. But council member Gilda Orange said it seems to be an attempt to force employees to bargain with the administration, something she doesn't think is the council's job. Garcia has also sponsored an ordinance to establish responsible bidding practices, but some East Chicago officials say that's already covered by the city's purchasing policy. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. A judge has ruled that the special prosecutor and his co-counsel in the case against Lake County Sheriff Oscar Martinez Jr. for allegedly resisting law enforcement and reckless driving can remain on the case. The Post-Tribune reports Newton County Circuit Court Judge Gerald Leach, acting as special judge, made the decision earlier this week. Stanley Lefko named David Thompson as his co-counsel to assist him. Paul Stracci, one of Martinez's attorneys, requested a trial date as early as possible because Martinez is on the May 3rd Democratic Party primary ballot seeking re-election. Martinez has denied the charges and blamed his political opponents. The Lake County Commissioners asked for the investigation over alleged misuse of some of the county's new police vehicles. One of Martinez's attorneys complained about the cost of the special prosecutor hiring a co-counsel, but Lefko said that the defense filed a lengthy subpoena for about 30 video, audio, and document records, which will take time to review. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. For some kids in Indiana, lead poisoning is a fact of life. Network Indiana's Chris Davis reports on what might help kids, especially in cities like East Chicago. This is um, going to make a difference. It's not often that you hear where lawmakers can have such a direct impact with new laws, but Governor Eric Holcomb says he wants to make sure in this legislative session that starts today that lawmakers require more thorough autopsies for babies who die suddenly and it's unexplained. And it may seem like a small item, but anytime you're talking about saving one life, um, huge, huge difference maker. He also wants lawmakers to require doctors to offer testing for lead poisoning. Chris Davis, Network Indiana. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with D. Dotson. The Indiana Senate is bracing for a contentious second half of session after the House sent several controversial measures its way. 
Among the measures Senate lawmakers will grapple with in the next few weeks are a bill on COVID-19 vaccine mandates, a billion-dollar-a-year tax cut package, legislation policing how controversial topics are taught in schools, and a ban on transgender girls playing girls' high school sports. Senate Republican leader Roderick Brang says that will make for more challenging work. The first half, frankly, was um, uh, frenetic, but uh, relatively smooth as far as I'm concerned. Uh, there'll be some difficult bills that we'll have to deal with, but uh, we're, we're equipped to do it. Senate Democratic leader Greg Taylor predicts several of those measures will be significantly changed, if not halted, outright. He calls his chamber more pragmatic. As for his caucus, he says the top priority in the second half will be pushing for medical cannabis. It is so beneficial and we're just stuck here in the Midwest uh, on a lake without a paddle. I mean, the other states around us have done this. Lawmakers have until mid-March to finish their work. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. A number of controversial education bills are still moving forward at the halfway point of the Indiana legislative session. Indiana Public Broadcasting's Jenny Lindsay explains what's still moving and what isn't ahead of the session's second half. The education bills still making their way through the statehouse cover a wide range of topics. That includes controversial bills like those aimed at school curriculum and parent involvement, transgender athletes, and referendum funding shared with charter schools. Lawmakers are also moving forward with a handful of teacher workforce bills and changes to the way special education disputes are handled. A bill approved by the Senate requires students to fill out the FAFSA, or at least strongly consider it, and another would require public comment at school board meetings. But some proposals didn't make it through the first half, including a bill to make school board elections partisan and a proposal to offer in-state college tuition to undocumented students. For Indiana Public Broadcasting, I'm Jeannie Lindsay. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with Dee Dotson. House Republicans voted Monday to further restrict when Hoosiers can vote by mail. Indiana Public Broadcasting's Brendan Smith reports the GOP wants to encourage in-person voting, but Democrats call the measure voter suppression. Currently, you can cast a mail-in ballot if you won't be available to vote on Election Day. Under a bill headed to the Senate, you would now also have to attest under penalty of perjury that you won't be available to vote in person any time in the 28 days before the election. Democratic Representative Tanya Paff says that's going the wrong way. Most voters won't risk trying to figure out their calendars, transportation needs, childcare, work schedules, just so they re can request an absentee ballot. Instead, they just won't vote. Republican House Speaker Todd Houston says there are plenty of in-person voting opportunities, which is true in some counties. Every person in this chamber wants to encourage uh, voting as much as possible, and I'm proud to say in Indiana, I believe we've done that. According to the Indiana Civic Health Index, the state recently dropped from 41st to 46th in the country for voter turnout. For Indiana Public Broadcasting, I'm Brandon Smith at the State House. You're listening to Lakeshore Update with D. Dotson.
Here's Regionally Speaking host Chris Nolte with a conversation with IU Northwest Associate Professor of Economics, Micah Pollack. Indiana University Northwest Associate Professor of Economics, Micah Pollack, uh, not only gives a chance to fill us in on the local and regional economic news, but he also has the latest on COVID-19. In fact, that's on his Twitter feed, and he's got a, a Twitter feed update that is just chock full of information and some good news, too, I suppose. And we have uh, Professor Pollock on with us to talk about it today. Uh, Micah, thanks for joining us on Lakeshore Public Radio. Good morning, Chris, and thanks for having me. Well, first, give us the good news uh, based on the information that you have out there on the Twitter feed on, on how we're dealing with the pandemic these days. Yeah, so Northwest Indiana, and especially Lake County in particular, was one of the first places in the state to get hit with the Omicron strain. And so we saw cases skyrocketing here well before the rest of the state did. Uh, and while that was unfortunate for us, one of the benefits is it means we're also one of the first places to start seeing a decline. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, during the month of December, average daily cases up here in Northwest Indiana quadrupled um, from like 440 a day to 16, over 1,600 a day, um, which was roughly double the highest we've ever seen during any other wave. And since then, in the month of January, January, we've seen the reverse. So cases are now falling back down and are below um, where they were at the start of December. And, you know, the positivity rate's kind of lagging behind a little bit, and that's still elevated. But we're in a much better place than we were at the beginning of the year, uh, and, and we're doing a lot better than the rest of the state as well. From what you've gathered, how long does it seem to have taken us, I mean, like talking about Northwest Indiana here, uh, by trying to personify it, uh, how long has it taken us to, to be able to get to this point? Well, um, it's been roughly a month of really steep increases during December and then roughly another month of it coming back down. And we're not fully back down to where we were uh, entirely, especially if you look at things like hospitalizations and deaths from COVID-19. Um, but we're on track to those things decreasing very rapidly. Um, we've cut you know, in half roughly the number of people hospitalized uh, for COVID right now. Uh, and, you know, the ICU uh, bed availability that's been a huge problem during this Omicron wave. Mm -hmm. um, at one point, you know, the state or Northwest Indiana was down to about a dozen available beds across a dozen hospitals. So that means like roughly one bed on average was available in the ICU. Now we've got some space there and we're up to over 30 beds available in ICUs in Northwest Indiana, which is, you know, good news. But again, just because hospitals may have space for you in the ICU now doesn't mean you want to be uh, in one of those beds. Yeah, that's I would think that would be the last thing I would want, because I know. And unfortunately for some people, that's uh, that's led to uh, to the, the worst case scenario where you've got people that have died. How are we doing as far as Northwest Indiana is concerned and maybe the rest of the state on, on fatalities because of COVID-19? So we actually uh, hit a higher level of fatality statewide than any other wave, uh, both statewide and in Northwest Indiana. You know, those deaths tend to lag behind hospitalizations, which lag behind cases. So we're well over the, the peak of cases, most of the way over the peak of hospitalizations. Deaths are starting to fall a little bit, but um, we still had, have had very high numbers of deaths, um, you know, in Northwest Indiana. Uh, and hopefully we'll continue to see those, those fall quickly as, as cases and hospitalizations mm -hmm. drop off as well. When the information comes in to you and you get to, to look through it and get to be able to end up posting it on your Twitter feed, uh, what kind of time lag does it typically end up being? Um, well, it depends uh, a little bit on what kind of data you're looking at. I tend yeah. to look at data not when it was reported but when it was actually occurred because I think that's a more useful metric, right? It doesn't help me to, to find out that so many cases were reported today if a lot of them occurred in the past. So I'm usually looking at data that has um, usually a three- or four-day embargo period or delay. Uh, so, you know, some of this data is three or four days old. So I think that, you know, when the new numbers come out today and in the following days, we'll see even further declines. 
Now, I know that the uh, State Board of Health, or State Department of Health, rather, uh, has kept things up for a while, but they've kind of slipped and they've gone back to only issuing uh, updates, uh, what, only once a week now, basically? Uh, or maybe if, maybe if it's really bad, I suppose they, they will probably do twice a week. But uh, is, is that a case where you're able to, to get better, faster data rather than having to rely on the State Department of Health? Well, no, they still publish um, daily updates. Yeah. Uh, they don't do it on the weekend. So we, but you know, that stopped a while ago. So we're still getting the same, you know, frequent updates that we're get, we've always been getting from the state. I will say that uh, national data has improved dramatically, especially when you're tracking things like the effectiveness of vaccinations, where you know you want a bigger sample size and to see what's happening nationally, not necessarily in you know just a particular corner of, of Indiana. Mm. Um, but if anything, we're getting better quality data and, and more frequent updates than you know any point before. Let's talk about vaccines now. I know that you've gotten several posts, and if you've been retweeting some one of them already, I noticed one this morning when I took a look at the uh, the website or the uh, the Twitter feed rather, and and saw that the, some people, including a lot of physicians, are trying to dispel the rumor that, uh, that that vaccines don't work. Yeah, there's this uh, misconception going around that a lot of people in the hospitals are vaccinated, and that's simply not true. Um, I like to look at uh, particular health system deaconess in southwest Indiana in Evansville um, because they publish every two days a complete breakdown of all the patients in, in the hospital for COVID and oh. where they are and what their vaccination status is. So you can really see over time you know, what's happened to vaccinated people versus unvaccinated. And, and from that, um, since August, uh, if you're unvaccinated, that makes you five times more likely to be hospitalized, eight times more likely to be in the ICU, and 14 times more likely to be put on a ventilator. Oh. Uh, and let me just say that one again, one other way. This means that if you're unvaccinated, you're more likely to be put on a ventilator for COVID than someone who's vaccinated is to even be admitted to the hospital in the first place. Well, since we still don't have uh, the availability of beds like we should have in the ICUs, it's better, but not not good enough yet. It's, it would still, once again, as always, would make sense to uh, to get vaccinated, I would suppose. Absolutely. That's the single biggest thing you can do to reduce your risk and then also reduce the risk of you potentially spreading it to someone else and, you know, a family or loved one that might be immunocompromised or too young to be vaccinated yet. We're talking to IU Northwest Associate Professor of Economics, Micah Pollock. Uh, besides economic news uh, that comes out from the region, he also has on his Twitter feed some of the latest data uh, from the the, uh, the hospitals and other sources about uh, the COVID-19 pandemic that we're under. Uh, what are the thoughts that are floating around out there now since uh, it's just come out about coming up uh, with a, a Pfizer-BioNTech uh, vaccine for youngsters under the age of five? I mean, I can tell you as a parent of a youngster under the age of five, I'm mm -hmm. very excited about it. Um, you know, I have, t I have two kids and one is in school uh, where masks are optional. And I'm not so worried about the older child because she's been vaccinated. But, you know, the vaccine doesn't prevent you from being infected and transmitting it to, to others. It, it's mostly about preventing you from being hospitalized and, and having serious reactions. So I do worry about the younger kids that are not yet vaccinated and maybe exposed through daycare, or through siblings at school. And so I think that this is uh, going to be a great option for parents that you know want to protect their kids a little bit more, and hopefully will reduce some of the you know the stress about uh, masks and schooling and everything else that you know we struggle with on a daily right. basis. Let's talk about talk about masks. I know that that you've gotten some things that you've retweeted uh, from people out there that have sent them on to you about uh, the concern about young people wearing masks. And I noticed one that uh, that was very interesting uh, from I think from California or from the West Coast at least, uh, where they they said that the youngsters uh, don't seem to mind wearing masks. In fact, they seem to forget they have them on. Yeah, I think that if you have a youngster that minds wearing masks, it's either because they have a very poor fitting mask or a low quality mask, 
or they may be picking up from parents who don't like the idea of their children wearing masks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my daughter wears a mask every day, even though, uh, you know, it's optional. And, you know, we have high-quality masks, so it's not like a surgical mask. They hit, you know, there's KF94s and KN94s, which are much more comfortable. And, you know, she regularly doesn't take it off when she gets home right away, especially if she goes outside to play because, you know, it's warmer. And, you know, it, it, it's up to her if she wants to take it off. And most of the time, you know, she's perfectly happy with it on. And, um, you know, it's, it's definitely not a problem. Let's uh, talk about uh, some economic news now, and especially uh, because of the uh, pandemic. How are we seeming to do these days here in northwest Indiana in trying to still deal with the pandemic and yet try to build back our our economic standing where where it has been before? I mean, the biggest challenge uh, or hurdle has been with labor markets. We have record low unemployment rates, um, and it's really a market for workers, which is something we haven't seen uh, in Indiana and northwest Indiana in a while. And so workers can really afford to be uh, choosy over the type of employment they take, and they're not willing to go back to the same types of wages and, and, and uh, benefits that they maybe were, were forced to take before because now they have so many options. And at the same time, we're also seeing pressure again from you know taking care of family members that may be sick or kids that are out of school to stay home and have more flexible working schedules. And so I think we're going to see really tight hiring for you know at least the next few months, if not full year. I think that's going to be the main challenge for a lot of businesses is finding those workers and, and keeping them. Mm-hmm. I know that we've, we've seen a lot and heard a lot here lately about uh, about the, the issue of, of employers trying to find enough people uh, in some jobs that were with the employment uh, usually comes and goes anyway. It's very, very cyclical. But how is the pandemic seem to be in just typical jobs where, where you have, a, I guess, some expectation of staying in the job for a while? Well, for industries where jobs typically pay better, provide greater benefits, you know, paid time off, sick days, uh, the possibility of working remote, most of those businesses aren't really struggling to find workers. It's really the businesses where you have to have a regular schedule, where maybe you don't get particularly good health insurance, um, you know, or, or paid time off or, or child care opportunities. Those businesses are what are having the hardest time finding workers because, you know, workers have a little bit more flexibility now. When you know you're 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 in demand and you're a hot commodity, you can be a little bit pickier about where you work. And so, those that maybe are not offering the right kind of uh, pay or, or options, they're just you know going to have a hard time, unfortunately, to finding workers. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me ask. We've we've asked the question and gotten a, a full conversation with uh, uh, Northwest Indiana Financial Advisor Greg Hammer about the about the Great Resignation. What is your take on that? Uh, and and you, since you've given us a little hint here and what you've just mentioned, uh, how do you think that uh, it it seems to be dealing with here in Northwest Indiana? Well, I think for at least the last few decades, many workers were just doing what they had always done without really thinking about their economic situation. And, and for many, the pandemic was a kind of a, a wake-up call or, or an opportunity to reevaluate if what they were doing made sense. And so I think you saw a lot of families that realized that, you know, they were one, one of the income earners was working and their entire paycheck was going to pay for child care. And at some point you realize it doesn't make any economic sense anymore. I could just, you know, stay at home um, and provide that child care and actually come out winning in that, in that situation. And, you know, it goes beyond child care also, you know, elder care or sick care. Um, and then a lot of other workers, you know, were maybe stuck in, in in jobs that didn't really have the opportunity for promotion or advancement. And, and this was kind of a chance for them to shake things up and say, hey, you know, I, I don't want just a, a nine to five that pays me just barely enough to get by. I want a career and I want to find a way to make that happen. And 
you know, I'm not going to go back to, you know, where I was before. Do you think that uh, you wouldn't think that the uh, the pandemic would be a, a, an opportunity, but maybe, as you mentioned here, it might be, especially if you have somebody who's not happy with their work, but uh, they don't want to necessarily change unless they have the education to be able to get to that uh, the job that pays more. Do you think this has been going to be, uh, going to be rather, or it has already been a benefit to the uh, uh, institutes of uh, higher education, the community colleges, just for an example? It, it, we have seen some benefit, but you have to keep in mind that often education competes with the tight job market. So when there are high-paying jobs available, you're going to put off maybe for a little while going to school because of the opportunities that are, that are out there. And we've really seen uh, an improvement in wages, particularly wages among traditionally lower-income uh, jobs. Uh, and so you may you have heard a lot about inflation and prices rising, but a big part of that is the price of labor, you know, is, is a price just like any other price, and that has gone up, especially for lower income jobs. And I think that that is a is a real positive coming out of the pandemic is that we're seeing uh, workers that previously were being paid very poorly, they're seeing big increases, you know, 30, 40 percent increases in their pay. Um, now it's not for all wages, but particularly for those lower income groups, and that's contributing to inflation, but in a way that is beneficial for those workers. Mm-hmm. Let me uh, come back, as you just briefly have with, talked with the pandemic here, but let's come back to the, the Twitter feed. Since the Twitter feed's been out there, what, almost two years now, uh, how things have gone with, with you getting the data that comes in, being able to get the data together to be able to post that information, and what kind of response are you getting from people who have uh, been following along ever since you started the Twitter feed? Wow, yeah, it has been a voyage um, in over two years now, and I'm, I'm looking forward to the day that, uh, you know, I can, I can focus on something other than COVID, maybe more regional economic news on Twitter. Um, you know, and, and I keep thinking we have, we've reached that point, and then some new variant comes along and changes things. But um, in general, I, you know, I think it's been very positive. The type of people that follow me and that, we inter- that I interact with on, on Twitter, we're all of a very similar mind. You know, we want this pandemic to be over. We want our families to be safe. We want our kids to be in school. And a lot of the discussion is just trying to understand how we can do that in kind of the safest way and most economical way possible. Well, Micah, thank you for taking time uh, and being with us to talk about uh, the Twitter feed, about the latest data concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and, uh, and economics news in general here in Northwest Indiana. And we will check your Twitter feed on the occasion and uh, get the latest information. And we'll have you back on again soon, I hope. Thank you very much for today. Great. Thanks for having me, Chris. It's always a pleasure. You're welcome. That's IU Northwest Associate Professor of Economics, Micah Pollack. Regionally Speaking with host Chris Nolte can be heard each Monday through Thursday at 11 a.m. on Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM and streaming online at lakeshorepublicradio.org where you can also find podcasts of the show when you click on the program link. For the latest in local news and information, tune in Monday at 6 a.m. for Morning Edition with local host Chris Nolte. Lakeshore Update is supported by the listeners and members of Lakeshore Public Radio, 89.1 FM. Podcasts for Lakeshore Update are posted each Friday on our website, lakeshorepublicradio.org, as well as on NPR One. Make sure you search for WLPR and select us as your home station. Music for Lakeshore Update was written and produced by bensound.com. For Lakeshore Update, I'm Dee Dotson.